Tonight's class was dedicated by uh, Izzy Bestamsky and family. This is in honor of the upcoming yard site of his sister, Nechama Basia, Basia Bavram Yitzchak, on the 16th day of Shvat. And may her Neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she channel lots of bracha to you, Izzy, and to the entire Bestamsky family and to her children. And only, only from only, only big, 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 big brachas revealed blessing, blessings, and also with a fuah shalema for Leia Freida Basima. May she have a complete refuah amongst Shar Choli Yisrael. Um, uh, the class was also sponsored by Rabbi Herzl Alulian, and this is in honor of his father's yard site on the 17th of Shvat, Masod Ben Agajan. May his neshama have a great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May he channel lots of brachas to you and your Lulian family for all that they need, all that they want. Much, much bracha, revealed blessings of only, only good, good health, and only, only good, 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 good things. Um, the class was also dedicated by uh, Usher and Sharon Bistamsky, and this is in honor of Erefua Shalema Fasheva Bas Esther Hencha. And for Leifreda Basima, and may they have a Defur Shalema complete, complete, complete recovery. Take off from Yad Mamish without any delay. Thank you. Tomorrow night is a very special event for women here at Mayon. Um, if I am not mistaken, it is be starting at 8 o'clock. Um, so tomorrow night at 8. Check, because maybe it's 7.30. It's just that I was out of town and just got back, so I'm a little bit farmished. But tomorrow night is a phenomenal concert. It's going to be really special. Uh, three women, um, one on the piano, another two on the violin, uh, they're going to be playing really deep Hasidic music, some other compositions. It's going to be a very beautiful evening for women tomorrow night. So please tell your friends and uh, come in droves. Okay, thank you. Um, we are now uh, holding Parshas Yisro, the weekly Torah portion is Yisro, and we know that in Parshas Yisro we receive the Torah. That's in the excitement of the Parsha. God comes down on the mountain and he gives the Ten Commandments. 
Now we know that the Ten Commandments are repeated another time in the Torah. We read it now in Parshas Yisro, but we also read the Ten Commandments again in, in Parshas Va'ezchanon. That's in the book of Deuteronomy and Devarim. Over there we have Moshe Rabbeinu repeating what happened. It's Moshe is talking to the Jewish people at the end of the 40 years. He's repeating everything that happened. And he relates how they stood at Sinai and how, how Hashem came down on the mountain and Hashem said, and he goes and he tells us the Ten Commandments. So we have a repetition twice in the Torah of the Aseris Sadibros. And we know that the Torah is, obviously every word is measured, every word is infinitely important. The fact that the Torah repeats two times the same thing, there must be some chidush, there must be some novelty in this that the Torah repeats the Aseris Adibros the second time. There must be some difference between the first time the Aseris Adibros is mentioned and the second time. Now, if you look carefully, you do see that it's not exactly a repetition verbatim. The second time when Moshe Rabbeinu repeats the Ten Commandments, he doesn't go over exactly every word, does certain changes. For instance, in the first Ten Commandments it says, remember the day of Shabbos, to, to make it holy. In the second uh, Aseris Adibros, when it's repeated by Moshe, it says, Shamor es Yom HaShabbos, observe the day of Shabbos. Guard the day of Shabbos. And the sages say that when God spoke, which one did he say? Did he say, remember the day of Shabbos? Or did he say, guard the day of Shabbos? And the sages say that God said both. Zachar v'shamor b'dibor echad nemru. Zachar and Shamor were both said in one utterance, that which a human being cannot utter and a human being cannot hear, God says both of them. However, the first time the Torah records what Hashem says, it says, remember the day of Shabbos. The second time the Torah records what Hashem said through Moshe Rabbeinu, it says, Shamar, guard the day of Shabbos. And there are some other differences. Nachmanides discusses the differences that there are and Kliyakar and other. They point out many differences that there is between the first one and the second one. But we have to say that all those differences are reflections of something far deeper, meaning there is a core essential difference between the two times the Ten Commandments are stated. And these individual nuances that we hear, these are expressions of a deeper essential um, uh, essential differentiation between the first time and the second time. Now, since the Ten Commandments are not just the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments encapsulate within themselves the entire Torah, as we know that Rabbeinu Sadia HaGoyen, okay, one of the great, 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 great Jewish rabbis, um, writes, and he shows us how in, all the, in the words of the Aseris Adibros, in the words of the Ten Commandments, you can find all of the 613 commandments. And he points out where all the mitzvahs are hinted to and alluded to in the Ten Commandments. Not only that, there are a hundred and there's 620 letters in the Aseris Adibros. From the word, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God, until the very last word of the Aseris Adibros, 620 letters. And that corresponds to the 620 mitzvot that there are. 613 given to us biblical commandments and seven that the rabbis instituted. Together, 620. 
And that's gematria keter, the crown. Because keser, the numeric value of the word keser, is the crown. And so, what's the Torah? The Torah is God's crown. Assume, we're going to soon see the Torah comes from Hashem's essence. And that represents the Hashem's crown. So, since the Torah is all, it's not just the Ten Commandments, but it's the, I'm sorry, since the Ten Commandments are not only the Ten Commandments, but they are the entire Torah concentrate. And we have it repeated two times. So we have to say that this repetition of the Torah two times is reflecting or expressing something essential about the entire Torah. And that there is two very, very important elements of the Torah. They're not exactly the same. Because if it would have just been one, one theme or one idea, then it would have been related to us once. The fact that it is related to us twice. And as we said before, the Ten Commandments are different the first time of the second time is a sign that we're dealing with something that has some kind of a two, two sides to it. And one is expressed in the first Ten Commandments and the other is reflected in the second Ten Commandments. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. What's the difference between the first one and the second one? So the simple difference between the two sets of the Ten Commandments on the most simplest of levels is that the first time the Aseris Hadibris are mentioned, the first time the Ten Commandments are mentioned, it is God speaking. Vayadaber Elohim eskol hadvarim or elalem or God spoke all these words directly from Hashem. No intermediary, nobody in between. Hashem is speaking the Jewish people. Like the Torah says, that you merited to hear God speak. That's awesome if you think about it. It's crazy. It's crazy the idea that not too long ago, just about three and a half, over 3,000 years ago, we, or our grandparents, and we know that all souls were all part of it, stood at the foot of a mountain and we heard the voice of the God directly being spoken. We heard Hashem's voice thundering across the world as the words, as Hashem told us the Ten Commandments. It didn't come, it came through Hashem Himself. And um, it says that we couldn't understand it. It was just was too intense, too powerful. It then needed to be repeated a second time. It was repeated the second, because when Hashem said it, He said all the Ten Commandments all in one shot. Boom. Like only God can speak ten utterances in one, in one omission, as He gave them all out, all Ten Commandments. We, the Jewish people... Um, and then we, could, we, 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 we absorbed the sound, but we couldn't understand the content. So then Hashem repeated it a second time, in which it says, the first two we heard from God, and then the last eight was just too much we heard from Moshe. So it's actually difference of opinions if it was God himself repeating the first two, or a second time, and then we got the other eight, Hashem saying it to Moshe and Moshe telling it to us. Or possibly that, that in the first transmission, when God said all ten, we can only hear two. That, that's what it means we heard it from God. And later, Moshe Rabbeinu explained to us the other eight. So there are different opinions, and there are actually a few different ways of looking at it. But the main idea is that in Parshas Yisro, when we're reading the Aseris Sadibrus this Shabbos in Shul, we are reading the, the Ten Commandments, that was recited or that was stated directly by Hashem to us. 
second time Hashem we hear the Aseris Adibros, it's Moshe Rabbeinu telling us the story of God telling us the Ten Commandments. Meaning, even though Moshe is not saying any of his own, his own things, Moshe is telling us what God said. Moshe is quoting. It says clearly, Moshe Rabbeinu said, these are the words, Ashediber Hashem. These are the words that God spoke. So it's clearly God speaking. It's not Moshe speaking. But yet, it's Moshe telling us what he heard from Hashem. And that's the difference between the first one and the second one. Now it's interesting, by the way, you should know, that there, is a, there, is, there are opinions who say an interesting thing. That the first ten command, the first, uh, when Hashem, the, the, we know, we, we, know we, got, we actually got two pairs of tablets. See, but when Hashem gave the Torah, Hashem didn't give us anything. He gave us, He spoke to us, He communicated words. But He didn't give us anything physical. But then 40 days later, Moshe went up, to, went up to heaven right away the next day, and then he came down 40 days later, and he brought down the luchos, he brought down the tablets. Moshe broke those luchos, they didn't last. So then he went up again, 80 days later, <coughs> he came down with the second tablets on Yom Kippur, with the second luchos. So according to some opinions, the first luchos had written on them, or inscribed them then, by God, the words that are stated in Parshas Yisro, the Ten Commandments as they are written in Parshas Yisro. In other words, in the, in the, in the, for example, it said, Zohar es Yom HaShabbos, remember the day of Shabbos. But that one didn't last, that one broke, or Moshe broke it. So then later when he comes down with the second tablets, the version that was inscribed is not the version of Parshas Yisro, but the version the words copied from Parshas Ve'eschana. That means that the, the luchos that we remained and held in the ark, if you would open it, it doesn't say Zohar es Yom HaShabbos. It says Zohar, I'm sorry, Shomor es Yom HaShabbos. Guard the day of Shabbos as it is stated the second time, not as it is stated the first time. And the, so... Which, which, again, it's not, a, not everybody says that, but there are opinions that say that, that the two tablets reflected the two statements, one of them as it is stated by Hashem, and the other one as it is stated with Moshe, which actually fits very well with the nature of the tablets itself. The first tablets God gave to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe didn't bring any material to Hashem. Hashem gave him the luchos. And it says in the Medrash, the luchos were made up from stuff of heaven, not made up of earth. Even though it was a stone, but it was a heavenly stone. It was a stone from up there, not a stone. A stone from the spiritual worlds, not a stone from the physical. The second tablet was inscribed by God, but the actual stone itself was brought up by Moshe. Hashem told Moshe, come up to the mountain and bring with you two tablets. And I'm going to, Hashem says, and I'm going to inscribe on them, but you bring me your rock. So you see the same parallel, the same idea. What do we say? The first tablet is purely divine. There is no human, there's no human um, involvement at all. It's purely godly. Hashem is speaking to the Jewish people. The second tablets, even though it is Hashem's words, but it's Moshe speaking Hashem's words. And actually, that's reflected in the tablets themselves. 
that in the second tablets, the one that Moshe repeats, that's the one that's written in the second tablets, which the second tablets are more earthy because they're brought, they're, they're, they're taken from earth. The, tablets, the, stones, the stones themselves are taken from earth. In contrast to the first tablets, where the tablets themselves are completely divine. So we have, so according to this, what do we have? We have over here two Torahs. We have a Torah that's utterly divine, and then we have a Torah that is partially human. The fact that Moshe is telling us what God said. Because as we said earlier, the Ten Commandments are not just the Ten Commandments, they reflect the entire Torah. Since the Torah was given to us two, in two versions, is a sign that there's something about the Torah that is there, is, there is two elements to the Torah. So to understand that better, let's get a little deeper in understanding the Torah. The first thing the Talmud tells us about the Torah is that the Torah preceded creation. The Torah is here way before the world. Not only that, the, the Talmud says the Torah is called Chemdognuza, that precious entity that is hidden and precious to Hashem, that God Himself entertains Himself with it. That's what the Gemara calls it. The Abishter's precious entity that's way before creation. So the Torah is utter, what we see from here is that the Torah is completely a godly entity, way, way above creation. It has, truth is, it infinitely transcends creation. It's not about the world. Even though, it, even though, you know, when we learn Torah, we're learning a Torah, talking about stories that happened and laws of how to, how to behave in this world and how to fix the world. So it almost seems like the Torah is a guide to life. That's true, but that's not the essence of the Torah. The essence of the Torah is not a guide to human life. Because the Torah precedes the whole idea of a world. The Torah exists before a world. And it's not like the Torah was, is created to support the world. It's not a manual. I have a world. How will the world, how can we live our best lives? So God says, I'll give you a, man, a manual of instructions of how to live. It's the opposite. The world was created so we can implement the Torah. Not that the Torah was made so that it can, be, so that it can help us in our world. The Torah way precedes that. Especially when we bring in the esoteric element this that the Zohar says. The Zohar says that the Torah is Araisa the Chad. The Torah and God are totally one. And as we learn in Hasidus, as the Hasidic masters explain it, the Torah is the essential wisdom and the essential desire of Hashem. And therefore it's completely unified. And even, and, and even that, that we say that the Torah is Hashem's wisdom, and we say the Torah is Hashem's desire, that's already a lesser definition of the Torah. That's the Torah as the Torah is beginning to formulate itself, as it's beginning to descend. The original, original Torah is one with God's very, very essence. Prior to any determination or definition of any defining factor, even to say that Hashem has a will, or Hashem has a wisdom, even deeper and deeper and higher than that, the Torah is one with the quintessence of God Himself. That's the Torah. Obviously over there, the Torah is utterly Hashem. Completely above, beyond, beyond. No one can have any grasp, any reach, any, any, any kind of, 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 of connection to it. That's the Torah in its purity. 
But then the Torah makes a journey. This is the second part of the Torah. The Torah makes a journey and the Torah begins to descend as it evolves into our reality, into the world. And where does it come down? It passes through all of existence, all the myriads realms of creation. And as it descends, it applies to every reality. And we can say, in other words, it fixes and elevates and purifies every realm that it comes down, it kind of adapts to that world and shines incredible light in that world. So to speak, the enlightenment of that world. But it continues its journey. It doesn't stop. And as it continues to lower itself and to apply itself lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower until it comes down as a guide to physical life for physical human beings of how to live day-to-day living. It becomes down literally as an instruction manual of how to eat, how to sleep, how to walk, how to do business, how to involve in every aspect of our life the Torah speaks of. That's the Torah's journey. That's the descent of the Torah. And then it kind of formulates as a story about physical people, Avram and Sarah and Yitzchak and Rivka and Yaakov. That's a garment. That's the Torah kind of manifesting in our reality. Its real, real neshama is infinitely higher. And, and that too is only a, also only a garment for an infinitely higher Torah. And so it goes higher and higher and higher until the Torah is perfectly one with God Himself. So what do we have over here? Two Torahs. We have a Torah in its essence, one with God, then we have a Torah descending to man. And not only is it sent to man, when the Torah comes down, the Torah becomes so much ours that the rule, there's a rule. The rule is that we have authority over the Torah. So it's like a very, 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 very interesting dichotomy over here. On the one hand, the Torah is, no one can understand it, no one can reach it, because it's beyond, 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 beyond any, any, any type of sophistication. The Torah is infinitely higher than that. Because it's one with God. No one can know God. But on the other hand, it comes down. So much does it come down that the sages say Torah is not in heaven. And in heaven they can't even decide any Torah law. The only decision on Torah can only be by physical human beings. What do we mean? By human beings incarnated in physical bodies that study the Torah with gray matter of their physical brains. Imagine. Do we we realize what we're just saying? How, you know, what kind of wisdom, what kind of knowledge do we have when the knowledge is coming from a physical brain, which is... They said before, the physical matter, substance of the physical brain. I mean, even if you're very, very smart, you're still very, very limited by a physical brain. And guess what? We down here have the authority over the Torah because the Torah is not in heaven. Not only that, we human beings who study the Torah, understand the Torah, apply the Torah, we're supposed to do something with the Torah. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to fix our entire planet. What's this, which planet? Not some spiritual, very refined world. The coarsest world. The world with all of its problems. The world with all of its ferocious monstrosities that we have in our world. All the evil, all the problems, 
all the hardships, all the darkness, that world we need to fix with the Torah. So we're using it kind of like an, as a toolbox to fix the lowest of the low. And which Torah is it? Which Torah is it? The very same Torah that's the essence of God. Wow, that's crazy. Just to think about. So what, so what are we really doing over here? What are we really what are we seeing over here? The Torah is the, is the most, is like the super coolest thing. It's the highest of the high, higher than everything, yet it applies to the, lower, the lowest of the low. Now from these two elements of Torah, Torah being unknowable, no one knows the Torah, no one can grasp it, it's beyond, beyond, because it's one with God. And yet on the other end, the Torah descends down to this world for us to study it, assimilate it, understand it, and apply it. That has an effect on the way being that Torah essentially has these two dimensions to it, that, that reflects in the way we study Torah. That means in our Torah study, it has to reflect this awesome paradox. On the one hand, when we learn Torah, we have to have an unbelievable sense of awe that we are probing something that is utterly beyond us. If we think at ever that we can play with the Torah, that we can manipulate it, that we can say, eh, eh, I think, or itch. If we think we can play with it, we have no clue what we're dealing with. This is untouchable. Torah is absolute. It's God. You think you can tweak God? You think that because you didn't understand to take a little screwdriver and scratch out or take out one or two screws from God? Are you crazy or something? So to mess with the Torah? What is the Torah? It's one with God Himself. We can't tinker with God. That's why when we learn Torah, we make a blessing on the Torah and we say, we bless God, we bless you Hashem that you gave us your Torah. And we recognize that we understand zero. Nothing. And so much so, that let's say you know that you don't understand Hebrew. You don't understand Hebrew. But you want to study Torah, but you can't, but you don't have an English translation. And you don't have Wi-Fi and your internet is not working, so you're really stuck. That's a real problem. And you don't have an English book. But you but you do know how to read Hebrew, you just don't understand it. So the halacha is you should you should study Torah, you should say a blessing of the Torah and read the words even though they mean absolutely zero to you. You don't understand a word you're learning. Read the words. Why? Because the truth is, no one understands a word of the Torah anyway. So what difference does it make? The biggest rabbi with the biggest brains doesn't even understand one word that he's reading in there. Because the Torah is God. You understand God. So therefore, everybody's equal. So if you understand zero and you're reading it, you're touching the essence of God just by reading His Torah in the same way the most brilliant, deepest mind is reading it, understanding. But what they're understanding is not the essence. No one understands the essence. Because the essence is Hashem Himself. No one can grasp that. So that's on the one hand. And therefore, so much so, that when we learn Torah, we have to have a feeling of tremendous awe and fear. Because at this moment, I'm, 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 I'm connecting to God Almighty Himself. But not only that, 
the, the right way of learning Torah. I mean, obviously not, <coughs> not everybody brings themselves to that state. But the right way of learning Torah is that you read it, and when you're learning it, you have, you have suddenly you're so in, 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 you're so, so impressed by, by, the divin, by the divine light of the Torah and that this is godly that your, your entire identity of your mind and your understanding dissolves. Meaning to say you have zero self-awareness when you're reading it. And what then are you feeling? You're almost just a channel. It says that when a Yid really learns Torah the way we should learn Torah, you become a channel. And when you're reading the words, you just feel like you are saying Hashem's words. He is speaking, not you. The moment you're saying something, there is you there, you're blocking God. So now there is no you. You're just a channel. It's almost like you're just Hashem's microphone. You're giving God a physical presence in this world because your lips are going to create the vibrations of sound that are going to pass the words that God is saying. Before you opened your mouth and started saying these words, these words are true. They exist in all worlds. They're above the worlds. They're one with God. But the physical ears can't hear them because no one is saying it in a way that we can hear it. You're now lending your voice you're lending your tongue, you're lending your throat, you're lending your breath to create the sound for God to come through you. And that's the appropriate way of learning Torah. That's why the sages say that when a person learns Torah, first of all, the sages say an interesting thing, anybody that reads Torah, Chumash, or Shaina, or learns Mishnah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kenegdo. God is reading and learning Mishnah opposite him, together with him. That is awesome. That itself should make us dance forever. You mean I, you can do something? You can sit down and read a Pasuk and you can cause God to say those same words? Think of the biggest most important celebrity that you really love, that you're crazy about. It can be someone that lives today or someone who lived, you know, a long time ago. And imagine if you had the ability to like, you know, impress upon them something. You can say something and the moment you'll say it, they'll say it along with you. Because they're so impressed by you. that They'll say along with you what you're saying. You go, wow, that's like amazing. And here you're, when you start saying, see, which Pasuk is Hashem saying now? The one you're saying. Why is he saying it? Because he's so happy that someone is saying his Torah. So he's repeating it. Who? God. That's number one, that God says it along with us. But even deeper than that, not only you're saying human words, and God up there is saying godly words, but as I mentioned earlier, God's words are coming through your mouth. V'asim devadai bepicha. I've put my words in your mouth, Hashem says. So when you're speaking Torah, you're speaking my words. It's not you speaking, it's me speaking, but I am using, Hashem is saying, I am using your vocal cords, so I sound like you. It's your voice, but it's really me. That is crazy. But that's the truth. So in that sense, let's think about it. That kind of attitude in Torah learning 
is, is, is a sense where the human being is just God. We're, we, we're, the, main point, the, the main experience over here is not yourself. The main experience over here is that God is passing through me. He's passing through me. When I am learning his Torah, he is passing through me. I am not here. The moment I am interjecting and feeling myself and feeling like, oh, wow, look how smart I am, or look how great I am, or look how, oh, like I figured this out, and so on and so forth, then the words that I'm speaking are my words because I'm, I'm full of arrogance, and then God runs away as far as he can because God does not like to live inside someone who is full of themselves. So the moment the person has that sense of self-importance and so on in what he or she is saying, God's not there. But then, but the true feeling of Torah in this sense is complete nullification. I'm so aware that God is speaking through me. Okay. But that's only the first half of Torah study. That's only the one side of the coin. Now we're going to flip the coin over and we say, what did we say before? What, does the, what happens to the Torah? The Torah is God and one with Him. But the Torah traveled down and came down to this world in a manner where the Torah wants to be assimilated into the worldly experience. Oh, from this perspective, I can't melt, I can't dissolve when God starts speaking because then God doesn't come down into this world because there is no world, because I'm not here, I just dissolved, I lost myself. That's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants to communicate something to you, to me, to a person. So He doesn't want me to vacate myself. Oh, God is coming, let me run for the hills. Let me disappear to make room for God. But then God can't speak to me. He wants to have a conversation with me. He wants me to understand Him. He wants me to get Him. So he's telling me, hey, Yankel, give me your brain. Give me your brain. Do you ever talk to someone or sometimes you feel, I guess as a teacher I feel that sometimes. Sometimes you're teaching something and it's deep, especially over here we learn deep things. And you feel like the student wants to hear what you're saying, but suddenly it's so deep so their, their, their brain is suddenly not there. They're just not there. There's a steer. You can tell on people's eyes. They're totally, totally blank. They're, there's no one home. It's not coming from anything bad. It's coming quite in the country because the person is so awed by these deep teachings that, 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 that they, they suddenly like totally vacated. They went away and said, if I'm going to try to like mm, put my head into it, I'm just going to ruin the whole thing. Let me just be silent, right? We say like, you know, excuse the term, shut up and listen. I'm going to be totally silent in- internally, not, not externally, internally. I'm going to be so quiet inside of me so that I can, it can just be what is being said and not. So that's good on the one hand because then you're letting the teachings to go in, but there's really no brain over there to receive it because you've left yourself. You've, you've abandoned your, your space to make room for the teacher. God doesn't want that because God wants... So since the Torah has to come down to a human being, it means it has to enter into the human experience. And to enter into the human experience, Hashem says, don't shut your brain because you're getting so scared that I am here. That's good. You have to be scared that I am here. It should all you, it should completely blow you away that I am now inside your mind. It should blow you away. 
But yet at the same time realize that I'm calling you back because I want to talk to you. And I want you to understand me. How are you going to understand? With your brain. With your brain. Well, I'm just a little brain. I'm not even the smartest person. Doesn't matter. I want you to get me as you understand me. And I want someone else to get me as they understand me. I want everybody to understand me the way they understand me. Learn the Torah and figure it out. Work it through your brain. And if it doesn't make sense to you, ask a question. Don't ask an arrogant question. Oh, the Torah, whatever, I think that this is not right. Or this is whatever. That's an arrogant question. That's a silly question. What are you going to argue with God in that sense? The question over here is, I need to understand this. It doesn't make sense to me. Can you explain it to me? So then you're opening yourself up and you're debating and you're questioning and eventually you start, you get what it says. Sometimes maybe you don't get what it says. But the main thing is that the Torah is actually being absorbed and assimilated into your mind, into your world. So much so that the sages say, here's the amazing thing. Sages say that in the, initially when a person studies, in the Sechtas Kedushin, they say initially when a person studies Torah, the Torah is God's Torah. But then when they study it really, really well, and they really learn Torah really well, and they truly assimilate it, it becomes their Torah. It becomes your Torah. It becomes the, first it's Torah, it's the Eberster's Torah, and then it becomes the person's Torah. First it's Torah Sashem, and then it becomes Torah Soi, the person's Torah. How much, so how much is the Torah yours? So the sages say an interesting, there's a halacha. If a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, which let's say a true Torah scholar who knows a lot, there's a mitzvah to honor a Talmud Chacham. There's a mitzvah to give respect and honor for a scholar. If the scholar um, forgives on his respect. Let's say a scholar does not want anybody to stand up for him. He doesn't like it. He, it annoys him. So, that, so when he walks into a room, he tells the people, sit, sit, don't get up for me. So the question is, is he allowed to do so or is he not allowed to do so? A king, what happens if a king doesn't like that everybody, every time he walks into a room, everybody stands up for him? The king may not forego on his honor. When the king, even if the king says, don't get up, we still have to honor him. But a Torah sage is allowed to tell his students or people, don't honor me, and then we don't, we don't have to be disrespectful, but we don't have to give him extra honor. Why? Because he has the authority over his Torah because the Torah belongs to him. It became his. But hold it, didn't we just say that this is God's Torah and no one can understand it and no one can grasp it? What do you mean it becomes his? Who is he to think that he owns the Torah? The answer is he does own the Torah. But that doesn't make any sense. Well, if he understands the Torah really well, if he really appreciates it and learns it and digests it, then he owns it. But what is he owning? God's Torah. But it's God's. How can it be both human and God? Oh, back to the way we said before, that's the paradox of the Torah. It's both infinitely godly and therefore utterly incomprehensible and unknowable in its essence. Yet that very same Torah applies itself and lends itself to every human being that wants to study it. Every Jewish person that wants to study it. The Torah contracts itself to that person's mind till it becomes that person's, it belongs to him. 
If this doesn't make any sense to you, it shouldn't make any sense because it's impossible for it to be both. Yet that's what it is. It's both. It's yours and it's God. You understand it and you don't understand it. That's the mystery, but that's why it's so exciting. It's both. Now, just like it is with a person studying Torah, now let's take a look at how, the, based on this theme, that the Torah has these two parts to it. A Torah that is God and a Torah that extends itself to us, which causes us to study Torah in two ways. One aspect of our Torah study is to be completely humbled and completely nullified when we're learning it. But at the same time, after we humble ourselves, we're supposed to realize that God wants me to be involved, so I will involve my brain, and I will ask questions, and I'll work it through until I understand it, until it becomes mine. That is in the person learning the Torah. Now let's take a look at how the Torah has an effect on the world. Again, so there's the Torah itself, there's the Torah now relating to the person studying it. What's with the world? How do we? So we know an interesting thing. Through the Torah and through the mitzvahs, we make this world into a home for God. We change physical planet. And we prepare the world for Mashiach. We are all contractors here in this world, all Jewish souls. We have been contracted by God, emissaries, ambassadors, agents, whatever you want to call it, channels, to bring God down to the world and make this world a God-filled world, that the world becomes a home for Hashem. When we make the world a home for God, there are two things that happen in that home. Number one, God is moving in. That's number one. It's a home for God. It's not a home for some godly light or from spiritual um, entity. It's not a spiritual entity. It's not even a godly light. It's not even a godly manifestation. It's not anything godly. It's God himself. As much as God is God, that's, how, that's, that's what we're talking about. That essence of Hashem is, lives. That's what it means, a home. A home is a place where you live. Not some expression of you lives in your home. In your office, an expression of you dominates your office, not you. What do I mean by that? If you're a doctor, for instance, when you're in your office, your doctor part of you is there. Your essence isn't there. Because you're behaving only like a doctor when you're in your office. You're not being, you know, um, you know, let's say whatever your name is, you know. You're not being Isaac, the, the, the good old buddy of mine, Isaac, because you don't behave that way in the office. Your, your professional self. So you are a certain projected element of yourself in your office. If, if you're a, and if, if a person has a few professions, he's a doctor in the morning and a lawyer in the afternoon, so it's two different offices. In one office he is, he is projecting his doctorish kite, if you can say, and in the other office he is projecting his lawyer side of what makes him a lawyer. But what's, what's the difference when he comes home at night? When he comes home at night, it's not the doctor coming home. It's not the lawyer coming home. Because when his little three-year-old goes running out to greet his daddy, it's daddy coming home. And who is daddy? Daddy is not a doctor or a lawyer. Daddy is daddy. The entire daddy. You understand? That's unique about a home. 
A home is where you are, not anything about you. If we say that this world, want, God wants to have a home in this world, he means his very essence. Not, not his kindness, not his compassion, not his beauty, not his wisdom. God! That's awesome. Through the Torah, we bring God himself into the world. But the world becomes a home for him. A home is a place where you live comfortably inside a place that has many features. Because in a home you have many different rooms. And the way, you, the way you settle in and make yourself comfortable in that house is that you're kind of attaching yourself or, 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 or exp- a better word, expressing yourself in the different elements of the house. It's like, you know, here's a kitchen. So here I'm, 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 I'm settling in in the kitchen. Here I'm selling, settling into a bedroom. Here it's a living room. Here it's, here it's this room. Here is the hall. Here's my exercise room. Here's my music room, my studio. Here's where I... It's a, every place... So what really is, you're relating to all the details and you're expressing yourself in those details. And in a sense, you're adapting yourself, your very self, but to all these different parts of your house. And in that, it's very, very important that what is sensed in the home is not only the fact that it's your home, but that it's the character of the house, the character of the furniture, the character of the decor, the character of everything needs to be strong and emphasized, and that's what makes a house a house, a home a home. So let me explain that a little better. Let me explain that a little better. What that really means is as follows. In order for you to live in a house, means that the, the, you, ha- you have to like, uh, you have to enter into the world of that house. So, to understand, so what do I mean by that? You see, if I decided to move to Morocco, and I'm going to live in Morocco, and I'm not just going to visit there, as a, I'm moving to Morocco, and I'm going to live there, and I plan on living there for 30 years. And I have a house, I have, let's say, enough money, and I build myself a nice home. What kind of a home? If I am to live in Morocco, it's going to be a Moroccan home. Now, even though I'm going to set that home home in a way that, ta- that is to my taste, I'm not going to make an English home or a Polish home in Morocco. If I'm living in Morocco, if I'm truly living in Morocco, it's a Moroccan home. It has all that flavor of Morocco in the house. It's going to be fit to my taste. It's not, I'm not going to make someone in Morocco tell me how to live. It's the way I am comfortable in living. But I am expressing myself in this Moroccan home. Now, if I live 30 years in Morocco and time to leave, and now I move to Poland, so I will live and I will have a home that is a Polish home and has everything Polish in it. And I will make myself comfortable in that house. If I'm truly living there, if I go there and, I'm not, and, and I don't like it and I don't want to be there, okay, so I'm just hanging out. I need to be there for a while, so who cares? But if I'm settling in, I'm moving, and this is my home, but it can't be the same house like a Moroccan home. So when we say that God wants a home in this world, it means that He wants to settle into every place and into every person and into every city or every, every area in accordance to that city because He wants to live. And to live in a place means to take the place seriously, to recognize the place, to appreciate it, to recognize the unique character and culture of that place and make yourself ex- and express yourself within that character and within that culture. 
So God coming down over here means that he has to take us seriously. He can't just push everything away and say, I'm God, here I am. It means that he appreciates us for who we are, our little brains, our little hearts, our little mishigas, our little craziness. Us with all of our weirdness, <laughs> with all, he, he wants to live inside us. Oh, but how does he live inside us? He states the rules. He states to me and to you what the halacha is. What does the Torah give us? The Torah gives us the laws of how to live life. How to live in all aspects of your life. How to, how to have a diet that conforms with God's, where God is comfortable. How to have dress in a way that God is comfortable. How to set your house up in a way that God is comfortable. How to set your calendar in a way that God is comfortable. Shabbos, Yom Tiv, weekday, right? You, can't, you have to consider God's, God's comfort, the way He wants to live in this world. But yet, Jews, and I mentioned this other times, Jews who live in, 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 in uh, you know, in uh, whatever, let's say, let's say, go back to Moroccan, Moroccan Jews had a certain type of style and a certain type of Jewishness that's very different than Polish Jews. Polish Jews were very different kind. They were very, their Jewishness was Polish Jewish. And the Russian Jews, their Jewishness was Russian Jewish. And Moroccan Jews, Persian Jews, or their, their, their Jewishness had a whole complete different style. It had Moroccan flavor, Persian flavor. Very different than Polish flavor. It expresses itself in the foods. It expresses itself in customs. It expresses itself in the way we conduct ourselves as Jews. Each place with its character. Because God is settling into our reality. And if he's settling into our reality, he wants to be assimilated in our reality. But, in all, but, but what is common with the Polish Jews and the Moroccan Jews and the Jews across the what's common? Common is they're all keeping the same Torah. It's all Pesach. It's all the same laws. It's a little different because the rabbis minhagim, but generally it's the same, yet it's so different. So what do we see? Again, what are we seeing over here? In this application of God to the world, we're making a, we're making a home for God Himself. But where are we making it? In our world. In our world means he has to enter into all the details and all the p- unique personalities of every person and everything. God wants to blend with each and every one of us. That's what it means he's feeling at, he's at home. But who is there? It's him. Ah, how do, these two, how, do we, how do we combine these two things? To have God himself and to have a world with all of its details expressed. How do we merge these two things? It begins with these two parts of the Torah. Since the Torah has within it one side of the Torah is what? It's God Himself. The other side of the Torah is that it comes all the way down and it applies itself to all aspects of life and to all the consideration. And by the way, the Torah itself says that many, many things the Torah says, how do you decide what is the law? You have to see what is the custom of the place. If I sell, for example, the law of the Torah is, if I sell you a house, what's included in the house? What's included in the sale? Is the refrigerator included in the sale or not? I sold you a house. So Torah law says, you have to look at the custom of the way people in that city. If the people in the city sell a house with a refrigerator, then the refrigerator is part of the sale. If not, that means that God is going along with what? 
with the custom of the place. But it's again. So what do we have over here? On the one hand, it's God's, it's God's absolute Torah, and there's, it's Him. On the other hand, there is that adaptation element of it. And that's what enables us to do this magical thing. What's the magical thing? We make a home for Hashem inside the world. That the world, with all of its details, becomes a complete, a complete vessel, a container, a place where God can manifest Himself. So now, let's go back. In order for us to be able to have these two contradictory elements, both when, we're, when we are studying Torah ourselves, in us, and also the effects of the Torah on the world, it all, as we say now, it's connected to the fact that Torah has within itself these two, character, these two opposites. These two opposites are, are stemming from the original, original way, the way the Torah was given. When the Torah was given to us, it was repeated two times. Once it was given to us by God Almighty Himself. And the second time it was given through Moshe. And we asked the question, why do we need to have a Torah given through Moshe? The second commandment. What's wrong with just having a Torah given to us by God Himself? What's the significance of that? What's the significance of that double transmission? And the significance is really, really important. You see, the Torah that was given by God itself is meant to communicate to us Hashem Himself. If, the, the, if we would never have heard the Torah from God Himself, but we were to hear the Torah only through Moshe, but not through God Himself, then we would never really, really, really be receiving. In our Torah, we wouldn't be receiving God Himself we would be receiving God as He is shining in Moshe's neshama. What now? Let's understand something. Moshe's neshama is the purest, the purest, the purest possible. And Moshe's neshama is a conduit for God. That was the whole content of last week's shir. The content of last week's shir is how, was about how the greatest tzaddikim are totally one with Hashem. They're one with Hashem, but yet... They are con- contracted and they are, and they are um, defined with certain definitions. Because Hashem, as He emanates into their neshama and into their body, their body has a certain character, has a certain definition. Their soul also has a character and a certain definition. Within that is the pure light of Hashem. So let me just explain that for one moment. A very, a very, very important concept. We say that Moshe Rabbeinu is the mediator between Hashem and the world, between Hashem and the Jewish people. It says in the Pasuk, Anochi oimed beinachem Hashem elokechem. I think that's the words. I stand, Moshe says, between God and the Jewish people. So what's the significance of Moshe standing there? The explanation, it says that Moshe is the mediator. Through him, God comes to us. But what's unique about Moshe's mediation is that when Moshe mediated, Moshe had zero, zero, zero self-awareness when he gave over Torah. When Moshe gave over the Word of God, Moshe didn't have any self-awareness in that. He wasn't even aware that he is standing there. He was just a vehicle, a transmission. You know what it's like? It's like you have a huge tank and you have a small cup. 
And if you want to pour water from the tank into the cup, you have a problem. Why? Because the big tank is going to just overwhelm the cup, blow it away. So what do you need? You need a spout. Now, is the spout doing anything to the water? It's the same exact water. It's not like the spout is taking in the water, redefining the water, processing it, drinking it, absorbing it, and then spitting out new water. And that's the water that goes into the cup. That's not what a spout is doing. That's what a, te- that's what a student does. When a teacher teaches a student, let's say you're going to go home after this class, and you're going to say, wow, I like certain ideas that were said at this class, and you want to share it. You're probably not going to give over what I said. What you're going to give over is, you heard what I said, you processed the information, you processed it, and once you process it, it's going to take on your flavor of the way you think, and that's what you're going to give over. So what you're giving over is not exactly what you heard at the class. What you're giving over is what you understood of the class. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he spoke to us, did not do that. Moshe Rabbeinu was a pure transmission. As I said earlier, he's a microphone. God used his vocal cords to speak to us. So it was the purest transmission. He didn't in any way translate. He was just Hashem's words coming through him. True. However... He was still a spout. He still is a spout. What does that mean? The water did change a tiny bit when it goes into the spout. What's its change? The fact that it's a narrow flow as opposed to a huge, big, infinite water. It's now a narrow flow. The proof is, if the spout wouldn't change it at all, I don't need the spout. Why do you need a spout? If it's not doing anything, why do I need the spout? The fact that I need the spout is a sign that the spout is having some impact on the water, even though it's not really changing the water. It's not changing it at all, but yet it still has an effect. So when Moshe gives us the Torah, as pure and as holy and as godly as it is, it still has some effect. Why? Because the very fact that the Jewish people couldn't hear it from God, when they heard the Torah from God, they, were, they died. Their souls left their bodies. And they said, we can't hear it. We want to hear it through Moshe. Is a sign that Moshe is having some diluting effect on the word of God. For that reason, we couldn't hear the Torah just from God, just from Moshe, just from Moshe, because then we would be getting a diluted version, even though it's diluted only in the sense that it's making it, you know, acceptable to us. But still it's a dilution. And we need to receive the Torah from God's essence itself because the whole point of Torah is to give us Hashem's essence into the world, into us and into the world. So we need to be able to receive it directly from Hashem Himself, not through any spout. That's why the first time Hashem spoke, He spoke even though no one understood a word He said. But we heard the words coming from God and it entered into our souls directly from God. So what? So we can get the Torah in its purest, purest, purest form as it is absolutely one with the Eberster himself, with God himself. But the problem is that kind of Torah can never be assimilated into us. That kind of Torah will destroy us. That kind of Torah negates us. That kind of Torah just blasts our minds. We said before, the best we can do with that Torah is just silence our brains, silence our hearts, silence our, our, our entire uh, co- co- cognition, our entire consciousness, and just be a, 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 just be a passive 
conduit. But then we're not there. God is not having a relationship with us. He is here, but we're not here. We're out for lunch because we, we became so nullified in that. What did we say earlier? God wants to have a home with us. He wants to merge with you. He wants to become one with you. Ah, for that, you, he wants your brain to get him. He wants your mind to understand him because he wants to allow you and him to become one. For that, it's not enough for God to speak. For that, we needed to hear it from someone from Moshe. And what's, what's the idea of hearing it from Moshe? Moshe gives us the ability, Moshe gives us the ability to be able to conceive godliness, the divine. Why? Because he is what we call, Moshe is called Ish HaElokim. He is a godly man. What is the uniqueness of Ish HaElokim? What does it mean, a godly man? A godly man means that he's on the one hand a man, and on the other hand, he is one with God. He is a Ish Elohim. He's both Hashem. He's totally one with God. And he's also human. So he acts as that transmission. He can take something godly and lower it down to the human. So since we heard it from Moshe, who's an Ish Elohim, that gives us the ability to learn Torah and understand it. Without Moshe Rabbeinu giving us the Torah, we can study Torah. But then it would just overwhelm us. Then it would just negate us. Then it would just be Hashem, not us. When we learn Torah, we have to merge with Hashem. And become a, become a space, or become, or, and have the ability that we and Hashem should become one. And then, from our experience within ourselves, we can do that with the world as well, with everything in this world. We can make the entire, when we apply the Torah to the world, we can make the entire world into a home for God. And, and we have these two, and we have these two opposites. On the one hand, we have an indivisible essence of God presence in the world. On the other hand, that indivisible essence of God that's in the world, like I spoke earlier with the little when the, when the, when the daddy comes home, and it's daddy himself, it's not some part of him. It's Hashem himself with all of its essence. And at the same time, God fits himself comfortably into the world, unifies with every aspect of creation, and becomes, the whole world becomes his home. Each place, each person, in a unique way that fits with that individual character of that human being. We have a, a home for God himself. For that reason, we needed the Torah being given to us two times. One directly through Hashem, and one through Moshe. I just want to conclude with one thing. When we think about this, we think about this, if we just thought about this, and give this the right thought, what does it mean to become one with God? What does that mean? And when we say when Mashiach will come, we will live as being one with God, but we become God, one with God now, when we study Torah, and when we do a mitzvah, we become one with God. So what does that mean? You see, let's think about it this way. We are all tiny little, little creations, tiny little beings, occupying tiny bit of space in this world. Because a little bit of space that we're, that we, that on one tiny little planet, planet Earth, inside what? A magnificent galaxy with billions of stars, 
Think about it. How much space do you occupy if you're looking at the whole entire galaxy? And then you look at the galaxy and you know that this is just one galaxy amongst a billion galaxies. So how much space do you occupy? And then another thing let's consider. The fact that we're here now. When is now? I don't know. We were born, however old you are right now. And how long do we expect to live? Other than the fact that Mashiach is coming, so we will live forever. But other than that, if you take that out of the equation, how long do we expect to live? Whatever. Let's say we live a very long life. 90, 100, 110, 115. Fine. What's that? Think about all of time and all of... Think about eternity in the past and the future, all of time. Think about all of space and find yourself in that and think of your importance. Think of your importance. How important are you? So let me try to put this into, into an imagery. Let's have a class picture. Okay? So usually when you have a class picture, it's 30 people lining up to take a picture. And you know kids, when they take a picture, everybody likes to make a monkey face, so they stand out of the picture. So they like to stick out, like, you know, you, you, know, you make your face unique or something so that, because you want attention, you want to be recognized. Okay, but let's make a picture of a billion people. Oh, wow, you have to have quite a good lens, a very, very broad lens. A billion people on the planet are lining up for a picture. Now, you want to stand out. So you're going to wear a pink um, flower on your head, an orange screaming jacket, a flashy green belt. You're going to stand there and, and make the, the weirdest faces and, all, and you're going to color yourself with pink and gray and, 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 and any kind of polka dots all over because you're just begging for attention that someone should notice you in that picture. Is it possible that you're going to be even noticed as something in a picture with a billion people? No, you're a nobody. Bottom line, you're a nobody. How much of a nobody? An absolute nobody. That's it. An absolute nothing. That's who we are. We think we're rich and we're money and we're boop and we're boop. We're nobody. A little speck. How long do we live? A few years. Make a little noise. But if you take long, you look at the whole thing, you're nobody. That's if it's a billion people. And if it's eight billion people on the planet and find yourself in that picture. Even with all that you have, you can never get noticed. So now we're saying, open up a chumash and learn chumash. Ah. When I'm saying a pasuk, what's happening? The absolute reality, God Almighty Himself, the absolute, absolute being, who His reality is not living forever. He's outside of the realm of time. He creates and wishes all of time and space into existence. He is the absolute, absolute, absolute being. And he is now merging with me and becoming one with me. That means I am now melting into him. And he is... But more than that, I'm not melting into him in a manner in which I dissolve. I am... He is lowering himself down to express himself in me, through me, express himself in my skills, in my talents, in my brain, in my uniqueness, in my specialty of who I am, 
God is now expressing himself in me and through me, and me and him are one. Ah, what did you just achieve? What did you just get? Think about what you just got. What did you just get? You just got absoluteness. You just became real. Real on which level? Not Imagine the person, you have a billion people in the picture, and you take out uh, 10,000 people, and you're going to make a separate picture with those 10,000. All you say, well, that's, that's important. I was selected from the billion, and now it's only one in 10,000. And then in that picture, everybody's already more noticed. I'm somebody. Oh, then you're taken out from the 10,000, and you put into a picture of 1,000. Wow, these are really special people. Here God calls you out from amongst 8 billion people, from amongst infinite creatures and creations, calls you over and he says, I and you are going to get married and we're becoming one. That's importance. That's becoming real. Real, real, real with an absolute realness. This is really amazing. Now let's take it even deeper than that. The excitement is not that you are becoming real, the excitement is that God Almighty, the, the wisher and the willer, of, who's infinitely bigger even that he wishes and wills the creations, because God could have created a gazillion other kinds of worlds. He happened to create this one. He could have, and, I mean, he's not determined by the world that he created. And yet we're saying that God gets a thrill, and he gets excited, and he is happy to merge with me Little, peepsquick, schmendrick, nobody. And yet God wants to become one with me, and he wants me to understand him, and he wants me to let him in, and together we will, we're forging together to become one entity. God's very essence expressed in me. I am him, he is me, and it makes him happy. Just letting him into me. That's the wonder of the Torah. The very essence of God himself comes down to become one with him. And how does this amazing thing take place? It's because through the Torah, and in the Torah, it's through the Torah being given twice. Had the Torah been given only once through Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm sorry, only through God, not through Moshe Rabbeinu. God would be able, God would be given, God would be transmitted to us and into the world, but he would be canceling us as he would be doing it. The moment God would appear, we would be blown out of. We, we would be, dis- in other words, it wouldn't, it wouldn't manifest in our character, in who we are. It would just bypass us. And that's why, if you think about it, when the Jews did hear the Torah from God himself, they received it, but how did they receive it? By dying. Their neshamas went out of their body. They couldn't handle it. They went out. So we're able to receive it, but we are able to receive it by us not being ourselves. The beauty of the ultimate plan of creation, and the beauty, and which, which comes as a result of the Abishter allowing Moshe to give us the Torah, not just coming through God, but coming through Moshe, is allowing us to receive the Abishter, to receive God, and yet retain our personality, our character, our style of who we are. And you, so what's going to be after Mashiach comes? Some people are afraid. Oh, that awesome world of Mashiach, what's it going to do? No, you're not going to lose anything. You're going to be yourself. 
you, with all the flavor of what makes you, you. What makes you, you unique as an individual person different than every other person ever to live. Yet, you're going to see yourself as an expression of the one absolute being, indivisible God, as he is expressing himself as you, and as he is expressing himself as the other person, and so on and so forth. And that amazing combination, that it's the essence of God in this world, expressed with us and through us, is the uniqueness of the Torah being given through Moshe and through God. And in that two transmissions of Aseris Adibris, we have the perfect harmonious marriage, which was the ultimate purpose of all of creation. For that, we sing and we dance. And we cannot get over the awesomeness of being a Jew and being part of this project and enabling this magnificent thing to happen of this union between Hashem and the world, between the absolute and the very, 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 very insignificant um, temporary time and space existence, yet the two of them become completely merged and totally unified together. That is the greatest, greatest thing. And for that we wait for Mashiach so much, because when Mashiach comes, we will finally live in that consciousness and experience all the godliness that we had brought into the world all this time. May we merit to see that now.